it might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the... I'm bored. Wait! And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking long takes galore. We're talking fork bracelets. And we're talking splitting time between your friends and your boyfriend. 20%? 75%? 90%? And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking, most importantly, have fun, man. Oh, boy. Oh, man. boy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, everyone. So we are discussing um, what is not a fun film uh, in Gus Van Sant's 2003 school shooting movie, Elephant. And um, man, yeah. Um, that's it. That's the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just begin this with a preface that says extreme content warning. I don't find this movie particularly exploitative, even though a bunch of critics apparently do. But if you have been involved in any kind of mass shooting, this film can only be triggering, I imagine. I would imagine so. Um, the sad thing is, though, like, it's not that the film is more relevant today than it was in 2003. It's that mm -hmm. it's still relevant today. Let's just say that I'm going to end this episode with stats and also read out the names of all 13 people who died at Columbine, but um, the stats are fucking alarming, Trace. I believe it. You know, I, um, so I actually did, like, I, I did, you know, some normal research on Columbine, because I mean, like, look, both of us were alive during Columbine. I was unfortunately yep. like 10 years old. So like, I, I grew up in that wave of like, because like, were you out of high school by the time Columbine happened? It was literally my final year of high school. Okay. Um, so I, I didn't get like, you know, a wave of panic obviously spread over the nation after this happened. And I watched Bowling for Columbine, Michael Moore's documentary on, mm -hmm. on the subject to kind of like just get, get an idea of where we were as a country back then. Right. And there's a whole segment in there how a lot of schools installed um, metal detectors. Uh, some kid yep. got in trouble for bringing a nail, like, like a nail clipper or something to school because it was considered a weapon. And it didn't really bleed over to my part of texas in my school like we didn't get metal detectors put in but i was like it it really shows how much fear is used to uh to make change happen and sometimes for the better sometimes for the worst mm -hmm. yeah like i was a drama kid in high school but i was also bullied really badly and i was an outsider like there was a lot that i don't want to say i related to but reading the stories of mm -hmm. the two shooters i was like you know what i could see my parents looking at those descriptions and say oh withdrawn oh bad with video games anger management problems uh seems to you know not get into trouble but has had an incident where you know like the police brought me home one time and i could see my parents looking at that and being like okay well you're not allowed to listen to marilyn manson anymore you're not allowed to wear that trench coat that you stole from the drama department and so on yeah well i was in fourth grade when this happened so again i remember discussions about it but like i don't remember i don't remember the day it happened like i do when 9 11 happened like i remember where i was that day but do you remember like what, what you were doing <laughs> when this tragedy happened when columbine happened Ooh, it's weird yeah because there are certain kind of cultural moments where you can ask people and i think if they're of an age they will be able to remember so i do remember 9 11 i do remember mm -hmm. the results of the oj trial 
I don't remember this. I just remember the aftermath where yeah. there were a bunch of movies I was really looking forward to that immediately got delayed and or never happened. Like there's a Buffy episode that has a school shooting Ooh, in it. Yeah. And we didn't get to see that episode for, I want to say, the better part of six months to a year. Uh, no, you're right. Because also the finale of that season, that season three uh, mm-hmm. was a two part finale, graduation day. But it happens to take place where a battle takes place at the school. So they aired part one, like in the normal May season finale time, but they didn't mm-hmm. air the, the second part of the season three finale until like the beginning of season four. Right. Yeah. So it had these huge ramifications and kind of ripple effects on a lot of things that you would think, oh, well, this has nothing to do with it. Like suddenly we were so sensitive to media. And even to the extent, you know, I was thinking about uh, how that TV show Heathers never got off the ground because there was a school shooting or a mass shooting that happened right before the pilot episode was meant to drop. And it's like, oh, we're still doing this. Like this movie turns 20 this week, Trace. It's why we're covering Elephant. And you're right. It still feels incredibly timely and relevant, if only because of the way that people need to get some kind of catharsis or they want some kind of explanation. And we always seem to focus on the wrong fucking thing. Well, we always want to scapegoat. That's honestly like like, even again, because I I will say like, if you haven't seen Bowling for Columbine, like, you know, go watch it. Like it's an Oscar winning documentary for a reason. But so much of it, because I thought it was strictly about Columbine. I didn't realize it was really about like mm-hmm. gun control laws and yep. like our nation's mindset around guns and how like, the first scene of the documentary is him walking into a bank that says if you open an account with us you get a free gun <laughs> yeah do you understand now a little bit more why other people outside of the u.s sometimes have an opinion or maybe misconstrue thoughts about the availability and how many americans have guns so, okay, I, I, I get where you're coming from, but the funny thing, and I thought of you when I was watching this, because there was an entire segment of this movie comparing the U.S.'s gun stats and also, mm-hmm. like, the, the access to guns to Canada's. And right. it's a lot of, you know, people are like, oh, because, well, of course, they bring in race to it. It's a lot of like, oh, like, you know, why is it easier to blame black people for things? Because people are afraid of black people and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But you have white people in the U.S. at the time who were like, oh, well, you know, there's a lot more white people over there. And then you have Michael Moore like, really? Because I'm in Canada right now and I see black people, brown people, yellow people. Like, (laughs) it's a whole mix of people. Um, And also, I mean, I don't know how gun laws have changed in the 20 years since this. But like, it wasn't it, it was easy to get guns in Canada back then. So, you know, he's talking to people in Canada that have guns. And he's like, well, why? Why are your murder rates or school shooting rates or whatever higher in the U.S. if honestly your access to guns is about the same as what we have and no one can provide an answer? Yeah, it is interesting, right? I mean, one of the things that really stands out, particularly in Elephant, and we'll get to it eventually, but mm-hmm. um, I feel like if we buy guns, they're probably going to be handguns or like small arms right whereas the idea of like a a high powered like a sniper rifle or an ar-15 or something like that like Mm -hmm. regular people would never buy those yeah yeah but again post columbine like it was you know blaming marilyn manson blaming violent video games blaming metal music and it's like we're always looking for a scapegoat and you Mm -hmm. know on the flip side you know oh it's gun control laws it's this it's this it's this it, there's not one thing. It's not to one blame. thing. No, no. And but do I think it's Marilyn Manson? 
<laughs> no, I don't even no. think that's part of the equation. I mean, look, we've talked about like art's influence on reality on the show plenty of times. And sure. My stance hasn't changed on the matter, but it really is that people seem to like they need something to blame so badly that all sides will lock onto one thing of whatever their side agrees to lock onto and refuse to talk about it because <laughs> they need this one thing to blame to make life easier to go on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's human nature. We do it for nearly every issue, but particularly when you do look at the stats and just honestly, how many people are killed? It's like, ugh. <laughs> pretty sure it is the availability of firearms and then also all of those other factors that we can sort of bring in, right? You know, there's mental illness, there's bullying, there's school system inadequacies and that kind of stuff. Like, they all have a part to play because it's never just nature versus nurture. For but sure. The, the number of people who would just love to point the finger and be like... Oh, it's probably the dude with the makeup who yells into the mic. That's definitely the cause of all of our problems. <laughs> or, I mean, e even similarly, like movies about school shootings. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. like, I, I don't want to say it's one of the earliest ones. I don't know how many movies there are about school shootings. But like, I mean, even what last year we had the stellar, the fallout. We also had mm -hmm. mass, which took some, takes a very different look at a school shooting plot. Right. There are, uh, I've mentioned a movie called The Life Before Her Eyes with Uma Thurman that I think is really good, but some view is exploitative. And it's always a thing where I'm like, you know, I, I love hearing people discuss these types of films if it can stay civil. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, um, I don't know a solution. I don't know the right answer to these things, but I find discussions about it endlessly fascinating. Well, and I think the discussion is worth having, particularly when you want to start blaming the art. It's like, okay, well, let's start bringing the art into the discussion. But the problem is, is most people who want to blame things don't actually want to have that discussion, right? They want the scapegoat. Well, they also blame, yeah, they, they blame the art. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but okay, so Trace, why don't we specifically talk about this film? Because yeah. it is a little hot buttony that it's coming only four years after the actual event. It does and does not allegedly tell well, the story of that that's the funny thing right so yes i mean like look there are elements like little details in this movie that do mirror the columbine thing like whenever um i think it's alex uh whenever he drinks the the milk in the cafeteria mm -hmm. that is directly taken from one of the killers in columbine because they have security footage of him doing that so right. But again, there are liberties taken. None of these characters are based on any real people. I mean, you could argue the killers are, but they all use their, the actors' names. Mm -hmm. The rumor... So again, this is presented as fact, but sometimes it's rumor that this film did begin as a documentary that Gus Van Sant intended to make about Columbine. Right. Saying the idea of a factual account was dropped. But again, like, I've seen that presented as this is what happened, but I've seen it presented as this is a rumor that is unfounded. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure. But... Even going on that, Joe, so we're, when we're going into, uh, I don't know, remember our discussion on true crime on the Patreon? Yeah. So, I don't know. Like, I, personally, I don't find this movie tasteless. Like you, I don't find it exploitative. This movie, as weird as it seems to say, this movie has its heart in the right place, I feel like. Okay, unpack that for me. I mean, look, we'll talk about it when we get to the movie proper, but it's such a... Um, this is a true slice of life movie, right? Like we are oh, watching absolutely. a day. Mm -hmm. And I posited on Twitter after I watched it, because this is my first time seeing this. I was like, I don't know if the movie's more effective if you know it's a school shooting movie going into it, or if you don't know and are surprised by it. I mean, it's not even a reveal because you can kind of you pick up on things even halfway through the film that what this is going to happen. Oh, sure. Yeah. But 
And then I thought I was like, yeah, but then that goes back to Hitchcock's, you know, like bomb under the table or the bomb blows up thing where it's like, oh, do you tell the audience the bombs under the table and you build suspense mm-hmm. or do you not tell them have the and then have the explosion be a jump scare? And, you know, this movie was marketed in a way where everyone knew that this was a school shooting movie going in. Yeah. But so I think it works better that way or it's intentionally meant to work that way. Um, I digress from my original statements, by the way. I apologize. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. You're right, though. I mean, I remember when this film came out pretty vividly because it is so short afterwards. And I can't speak for anyone else, but I feel like North America was collectively still really grappling with this. And I told you off air, I ended up reading a really, really, really good book. Um, It was published in 2009 called Columbine, which will do a very similar thing to what this movie is doing, except it is based on all of the facts and all of the evidence like investigators and psychologists and that kind of stuff it's a really fascinating book but it basically just walks you through like the 24-hour period Mm -hmm. of the shooting it's incredibly detailed it's horrifically graphic and hard to read but if you are at all interested in sort of going on this yarn and getting a more factual approach because of course in in the days and the years even after columbine Everybody had opinions and they wanted to speculate about why did this happen? It wasn't about what happened. It was about why, because I think people thought if they could understand it, then they would be able to stop it from ever happening again. But in my mind, Elephant isn't doing that. And I found a really interesting quote from one of the uh, two or three sources I'm going to use in this episode. So this is from a DVD review of the movie uh, from a website called DVD Talk, and it's by Matthew Milheiser. And he says, Van Sant is not interested in polemics. He presents no explanations for the massacre, nor does he delineate motivations or repercussions. There are no pontifications over insipid talk radio topics such as gun control, violence in the media, permissive parenting, school prayer, or personal responsibility. The film begins and ends abruptly without resolution, climax, or closure. And I think that's why, you know, when you said, oh, it's a slice of life narrative, that is so spot on because there isn't a beginning or an end to this, right? But we all know that something is coming and not just because that's the crux of the narrative. Well, and going back to where I said, you know, where I said this movie has its heart in the right place. Um, there's no, like, there's no fabricated drama among all these mm-hmm. characters. I mean, you know, we have, like, normal high school things, you know? Sure. Like, oh, like, girls are bulimic. Girls are jealous that a uh, guy has a girlfriend. Um, one character is, father is drunk, blah, 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 blah. But, like, it doesn't feel like... This is a movie. It almost does feel like a documentary in parts. And mm-hmm. also the lack of explanation or digging into the why. I think it also helps to remove any kind of politics from the film. Right. And I think if there was a more like political angle to this, it would feel more exploitative to me. Because then it's mm-hmm. like, oh, you're making this movie to push an agenda or a side. Whereas I don't get that from this film. It just seems like someone trying to work through a a nationwide trauma to be honest Mm -hmm. and i agree with you although as we go through the film we will find that there are critics who do feel like gus van sant is trying to push an agenda and i will say when we get to the some of the critical responses i think people are actually quite mean specifically because this is a gus van sant film interesting why because he's a gay man or gus van is there another aspect of gus van sant that you're that you're thinking about 
So one of the interesting things that came up repeatedly in criticisms of this film, like reviews, but also people who were negative on the film, they really loved to bring in the fact that this felt like he was just doing a real life redo in the same way that he did with Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Um, I don't. But I think that comparison, it doesn't work, though, because Psycho is a fictional tale. Mm-hmm. No, I know. It's it's a total logic gap fallacy. And yet a bunch of people were like, oh, he already did this once before when he remade Psycho in 98. And here he's just redoing real life events under the auspices of like trying to do what exactly? Like, it's a kind of why does he keep bothering to do these things that don't have a point of view? But I think it's again, I think, well, okay, actually, that's a good question. Do you think there's a point of view in this film? I think that this is Van Sant holding up a mirror to the audience mm-hmm. and that he includes specific things that had been rumored to contribute to Columbine so that if you wanted to say, ooh, I see them playing a first person shooter game or ooh, the parents are absent yeah. or ooh, there isn't security at the school. Like, I think this is him saying, what do you think is the cause of this? Because it actually says more about you as a spectator and as a human being. Right, because there's so many, I'm going to say the word clues put in this movie. But again, I don't Mm -hmm. think that's the case. I think that that... No, the red herrings, if anything. Well, or it's more so, again, like this is four years removed from Columbine. This is also Van Sant saying, hey, these are all the things that people were speculating were the reason this thing happens. I'm going to put all these things in the movie. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter that these things are here or that... It doesn't. And so that's, again, this removed, like, almost godlike perspective that we're in over the Mm -hmm. characters in this film. Yep. That's what I find so fascinating. It's very confronting. It is. And I feel like, yeah, again, if they're like, I don't know, how would this movie change for you if this was, let's say, a direct adaptation of Columbine, which, again, it is. But like, let's say we were using real people's names and stuff. Mm, no, I mean, you you mentioned the conversation we had on Patreon. So we had a whole conversation principally centered around the controversy for uh, Ryan Murphy's show. Dahmer series on Netflix, but other examples of that and just how sometimes true crime can feel very icky. And I think if you did a fictional movie of Columbine, and folks, we are releasing this a year before the 25th anniversary of the shootings. I think it would still be seen as completely gauche, irresponsible, kind of disgusting. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, it's so funny, right? We have Gus Van Sant doing Elephant in 2003, and Oliver Stone does what? World Trade Center in 2007? Yeah. Yeah. But that one is very much a rah-rah Americana thing. Like, it's about celebrating firefighters as heroes on 9-11. Mm-hmm. I actually haven't seen it because, I I don't know, not because I thought it was gross or something, but I, I just, like, I don't know, I just didn't feel like watching a 9-11 movie. Although, I, I did hear that United 93 was actually a really good movie. Yeah, and I would actually compare this film, Elephant, to United 93, not just because it kind of has that air of authenticity in the mm-hmm. way it's actually shot, like, so technically it feels that way, but that movie is more of a slice of life, and yeah, there are kind of hero people, but we also know the outcome of that, and it there is no way for it to end well. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, the, the, watching this movie, maybe knowing it's a school shooting, again, like, everyone, this is a movie that's about 80 minutes long, and the shooting itself takes up maybe the last 15 minutes of this film. So mm-hmm. we've got an hour and five minutes of just watching high school students be and exist. Just live. 
Yeah. yeah. Just live their lives. And, you know, there are flashbacks to, to the school shooters and their planning and all this kind of stuff. But I don't want to say I was on the edge of my seat watching this, but I was deeply mm-hmm. uncomfortable because I knew what was about to befall these people. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so... Elephant was filmed in Van Sant's hometown of Portland, Oregon in late 2002 on the former campus of Whitaker Middle School. This school was closed down by the Portland Public Schools in 2001 due to structural problems and safety concerns within the school Mm -hmm. building. So I guess they just got a permit to use it. (laughs) Well, I think they probably took some safety precautions, but also the the shoot was only 20 days long. So it's not like they were in there for a full school year with a full student body. But it's interesting that they went there and they did it because they wanted authenticity, right? Like they're using all the furniture that had been in the school beforehand and then just bringing in these non-professional actors. But it is wild because I don't think you'd be able to convince a school board to do that nowadays. I Yeah, I mean, again, if, 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 if it was closed for structural problems and safety concerns, but hey, shoot a movie in there, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about the politics, but sure, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, you're right. It was shot in 20 days. Um, there was no initial script before filming started. So the script was quote unquote written to its final form during shooting. And most of the cast, I mean, sorry, all of the cast pretty much are no names. Like Gus Van Sant purposely, I want to say he he saw 1,500 non-actors and pulled 15 of them out. That is wild. Yeah. Um, most of the cast members improvised freely and collaborated with the direction of scenes. Um, so, again, this is like a a group effort. I, I mean, I'm sorry. All films are group efforts. But <laughs> <laughs> in the creation of, like, dialogue and things, it re- a collaborative effort. It was I was going to say, collaborative it's collaborative. Yeah, there you yeah. go. The title, in case you didn't know, though, is a tribute to the 1989 BBC short film of the same name, directed by Alan Clark. And that film is set in Northern Ireland during an ethno-nationalist conflict in Northern Ireland that lasted for about 30 years, from the late 60s to 1998. And Van Sant's minimalist style and use of tracking shots mirrors that film style as well. Hmm. Yeah, so I'm curious, what did you make of the title? Because people have interpreted it in, in two ways. So there's yep. one, which is the elephant in the room, i.e. the thing that's there that we don't talk about. And then there's also the parable of the elephant and the blind men where they're touching all different parts of the elephant, and they think it's all different things, but really it's one animal. Well, that's the funny thing. So the reason Gus Van Sant picked this title originally was because he thought that the 1989 film's reason for having that title was about that parable. Okay. But if he found out that it was actually that film was named because of the elephant in the room. So that's why the two readings come into this. <laughs> Here's the thing. I think they both work well yeah. uh, in terms of titles. Well, because the way the way the narrative in this film unfolds is it's very much like, okay, I know this came before this movie, but it's like that movie Vantage Point that I brought up before. We're again, we're watching oh the God. same scene play out across different viewpoints and how every, how perspectives can change and how I mean, look, we can go even bigger and be like, hey, look, if you have a different lived experience, you have a different view on life, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then the elephant in the room is that, I mean, well, how many elephants are in this room, Joe? Because you could argue um, there are two psychopaths in this school and no one saw this coming. Sure, sure. But I mean, you could say it's about the girls who have bulimia. You could say it's about the drunk dad that the high school principal would rather give a student detention over instead of dealing with a systemic issue. Like, yeah, that's kind of one of the things I really like about this movie and its slice of life approach is that there's so many issues that we just naturally turn a blind eye to. It just so happens that one of those issues is school violence. 
A hundred percent. Absolutely. Um, and it's so, oh God, I was going to say funny, but it's so sad because I mean, again, when this happened, like this was a big fucking deal. And I feel like we see school shootings happen several mm-hmm. times a year now. I will give you the stats. Okay. G- give me the stats. Oh, you want the stats now? Okay. Oh, oh, sorry. No, we, we can wait. <laughs> um, okay. But here, we'll, we'll, we'll save that. So, okay. The film competed at the Cannes Film Festival in May 2003. Uh, Van Sant claimed audiences in attendance at Cannes argued over its quality, leading to altercations. But um, hmm. I, don't, I don't know if that means physical altercations or just really intense uh, drunken debates. But who knows? <laughs> Maybe both. Who knows? Maybe both. Uh, it received a very limited theatrical release on six screens on October 24th, 2003, where it grossed about $93,000 uh, per screen average of about 15500 Not big. Not big. Yeah, I mean, it's not terrible, but, you know, normally it's those, like, 40-plus thousand openings. that are the ones that are like, oh, this amazing per-screen average. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it eventually expanded to 38 screens in mid-November, its widest release, and would go on to gross $1.3 million domestically and $8.7 million overseas, half of which was in France, by the way, um, right. for a worldwide total of $10 million against a projected budget of $3 million. All right. Some bad. Yeah, I mean, and I know we don't discuss some heated critics on the of the film, but uh, it did receive mainly positive reviews. We're looking at a seventy four percent on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of seven point one out of ten, uh, a seventy out of a hundred on Metacritic, and a seven out of ten on Letterboxd. Uh, I will pull Roger Ebert's quote for this because he did give it a four out of four. Mm-hmm. But he writes, um, Gus Van Sant's Elephant is a violent movie in the sense that many innocent people are shot dead, but it isn't violent in the way it presents those deaths. There is no pumped up style, no lingering, no release, no climax, just implacable, poker faced, flat, uninflicted death. Mm-hmm. Truffaut said it was hard to make an anti-war film because war was exciting, even if you were against it. Van Sant has made an anti-violence film by draining violence of energy purpose glamour reward and social context yeah i i ended up rereading the whole review because i think uh ebert.com reprinted it as one of the staff selections on the 10-year anniversary of ebert's death like Mm. they thought it was one of his better written reviews and i would agree i think it has a lot of insight and even a certain amount of vulnerability but he is He's very generous with the things that I think turn a lot of other people off on the film. And I appreciated that. Yeah. But again, I mean, again, we talk about Ebert so much. And while he comes down on a lot of good horror movies, like the, the, he was an intelligent man. And sometimes the light really shone through. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. And he's a fantastic writer, too. He is. Um, when he cares. Uh, cared. <laughs> when it's not an 80s horror film. <laughs> It's yeah, a good exactly. effort. Yeah. Uh, n- not much else. Although, I mean, again, look, there was another uh, shooting in 2005 that took place on an Indian reservation. It's the Red Lake shootings. Uh, Ten people were murdered, including the perpetrator. Five injured. But uh, some people blamed Elephant for this shooting uh, because apparently 17 days prior to the shooting, a friend of the shooter said that he brought the film over to his house and skipped ahead to parts that showed two students planning and carrying out the school massacre in the film. <sighs> Yeah, we like to do that. Yeah, it's it's just a thing where it's like so many things influence people. Parents can influence people. Friends can influence people, whatever. But like we always go for media because it just seems like the easiest thing to do, right? Oh, yeah. school shooter watched a movie about school shootings. Therefore, it's that movie's fault. 
Yeah, it's a little too cause and effect, and real life doesn't often work that way. Exactly. I mean, what have we said before? Just like Billy and Scream, movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. <laughs> if that. If that. I mean, look, creativity, like, maybe that's a bad word to use, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll stick with the first part of the quote. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but let's talk about this movie. Okay, yeah, so I think folks are going to have an interesting time with this episode because, as you said, a long portion of the runtime is mostly just teens doing their thing. And yet, you initially said, well, why don't we just talk about the movie? And I said, I think we should actually step through it like normal because there's enough here that's interesting to talk about. Sure, let's go. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned there's kind of a God's perspective of this, and we will see this three times over the course of the film explicitly. So we open on this kind of static shot of green clouds, and we just hold as we watch the sky. There's nothing particularly memorable about it. It does set a good tone because this film will use almost exclusively long takes. So just shots where we set things up and then we don't do any editing. I have this stat, by the way. So an average film contains about 1,250 shots. There are 88 shots in this film and most of them are in the last 20 minutes. Yeah, it is wild. You... <laughs> it's a very patient film in that way i think some people might find it a little ponderous or even slow but i think particularly these scenes where we're yeah just watching the sky you know it's we're watching a regular day the sky will do whatever it is doing regardless of what is happening down on the ground it's interesting you know because I, so I, I i looked at letterboxd for some user reviews for this film and you know i saw a lot of hope you like long takes um and it <laughs> yep. it, 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 it reeked a little bit of i mean sarcasm to be honest and it's kind oh, of sure. like i i enjoyed the long takes in this film because it made me a forget that i was watching a movie and it hmm. felt more intimate yeah, one of the things that I really appreciate about a long take is that it gives your eye the opportunity, as you said, to not be distracted by the editing. So it helps you to forget that you're watching a movie because it feels like you're just living or watching real mm -hmm. life. But to me, it also gives you the opportunity to do eagle eye scouting, right? Like you're watching more carefully because you're waiting to see, well, why are we doing it this way? What am I meant to be seeing? Am I meant to be looking at something? Is something going to happen? And that to me is where the tension comes from. It's distancing. Like it's not very intimate. We don't get a lot of medium shots or close-ups in the film. It's a lot of long shots and long takes so we're often at a distance from the characters but i find it helps to make us feel like we are there and we're constantly waiting for something bad to happen a hundred percent i know i say this all the time but like i was never bored watching this i mean even I mean, we spend like so much time watching elias like move this like metal canister of film chemicals over and over and over mm -hmm. and over but i was almost hypnotized by the motion oh sure yeah there's yeah. there's a hypnotic almost a circular rhythm to this film right where mm -hmm. people are just doing the thing that they always do but that's what i think it's doing right i mean it's lulling you into a sense of security i mean look it's not it's not like titanic where it's like oh we gotta wait two hours for the shit to sing but mm -hmm. it's kind of like a thing where it's like yeah I, I, sometimes you forget almost for a second that you're watching a movie about a school shooting right yeah yeah mm-hmm 
So our first character we're introduced by, <laughs> we just watch a car swerving down a suburban road and we get a title card. So we will have title cards introduce nearly all of these quote unquote main protagonist kids. So this is John played by John Robinson and his father is drunk driving and his dad is played by Timothy Bottoms. And basically John asks him to get out so that they can swap places and he will drive his his dad to school and leave him there so that his brother can come and pick him up later so i didn't know this but apparently timothy bottoms had made a pretty decent career for himself impersonating and parodying george w bush whoa really mm-hmm. and i wonder if that was intentional casting on van sant's part I mean, folks, if you do not know Gus Van Sant, he is a deeply political gay filmmaker so for him to go after george bush in a kind of sly way i could see it so he actually played george bush in a show created by south park creators trey parker and matt stone called that's my bush which aired on (laughs) comedy central from april to may of 2001 it was eight episodes long hmm so this was very recent then too yeah but i mean like they would have filmed this the year after that show dropped exactly Mm -hmm. Hmm. i don't know (laughs) i mean i guess josh brolin was gonna play w bush in a couple years oh also in an oliver stone movie (laughs) (laughs) um full confession though all i knew was that this was a columbine movie go yeah that's all i knew about it sure so i actually thought this was a movie where we're going to be following the killers the entire time and the character of john is on the poster and the the box art for this film so i thought this was the killer i was going to be following for the rest of the movie oh interesting okay okay Uh, yeah, spoiler alert, it is not. It and is not. <laughs> neither is the next character that we're introduced to, Elias or Eli, who is played by Elias McConnell. And he is an aspiring photographer. So we're introduced to him asking a couple of punks in the wood if he can take their photo. And then he heads off to school. So it really does feel like we're spending time with these two boys. So I completely understand why you would misconstrue right? what their role was going to be. Yeah. But then we get Nathan and Carrie uh, with this. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, first of all, though, did you recognize the guy playing the uh, the principal, Mr. I Luce? Mean, God, of course. I was <laughs> good. When you said, oh, it's a cast of non-professional actors, I was going to interject and say, uh, except for a certain gentleman actor from Drop Dead gorgeous <laughs> i like to see the young girls please the young girls uh, no i don't like young girls <laughs> <laughs> yes he is the pedophile judge from that movie go back and listen to that episode he's a great talented comedic actor he barely appears in this film but no yeah this is one of those pieces where you know you look at his role as the principal he's only in i want to say maybe four scenes in the film Ooh, but even that but you could very easily make the argument that he is one of those ineffectual adult figures of authority. Oh, yeah. I mean, his spoiler alert, his death scene where he's just begging for his life. Oof, God. Mm-hmm. It's rough. Oof. I mean, all, I would argue all of the deaths are really rough in this movie. Well, but again, going back to even what Ebert said, like it's a violent film, but also the film doesn't show all these deaths. It leaves some of them mm-hmm. ambiguous where you're like, I mean, look, Elias dies in this movie, but we don't see his death. Exactly. Yeah. To the point where I had it in my notes that I know he dies, but I I was like, wait, do we see it? When nope. does it happen? Oh, OK, right. No, there's several of these deaths that we don't actually see. I mean, again, I say, yes, technically you could say they're alive because mm-hmm. we don't see them die. But given <laughs> given what these two boys are doing, um, I think they're dead. Yeah, no, no. 
<laughs> most of these kids will die. I think it's also important, too, because the Elias scene, that, that whole sequence is in the library, which is where most of the kids in Columbine were killed. Yes. And this is kind of circling back to your question of if you watch this and you don't know that it's a Columbine film, are you still going to have the same kind of visceral viewing experience? I would say no. Although, you know, for folks like me who were a little bit older when the film came out and knew exactly what this film was, it was basically subtitled The Columbine Movie. Oh, so yeah. as soon as people go into the cafeteria or the library, it immediately just ramps up the tension for for you, if if that's what you know, because everyone understood, oh, that's where the highest body counts are. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we get this melancholy piano score that's playing, and um, sorry, it's Moonlight Sonata. Okay, let's. It's Beethoven. Wait, is it Beethoven? Does he? Fuck! I should probably know. Compose Moonlight Sonata. <sighs> Bitch, you're gonna interject, and you don't even have your facts no, ready. Okay. Um, it's Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. There are two prominent pieces of piano music in this, and it is mm -hmm. Moonlight Sonata, which plays over this, and then the killer plays for Elise over and over. Um, in yes. one particular scene. Correct. Yes, which is funny, right? Because beethoven piano it's kind of a hoity-toity high class stuff which i feel like we'll have more to say when we get to alex playing mm -hmm. uh for the least but i think it's a very deliberate choice on gus van sand's part i agree because hey you know if it can be marilyn manson why can't it be beethoven mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so we are getting moonlight sonata as we we just set up the camera we're watching jocks play football we're watching cheerleaders practice in the background we briefly have michelle who is played by Kristen hicks one of the few actors who doesn't have a corresponding character name yeah. but um she is in the middle of pe class and she pauses to look up at the sky so we also have Nathan. Uh, we we should note neither of these two characters get a title card until later. So, which really threw off my notes. <laughs> yeah, it, it. You just have to be like red hoodie jock or girl who's jogging or <laughs> girl with glasses, right? I, I was like, okay, we're doing a series of vignettes, so we're gonna get John's story. Okay, well that's over, I guess. We're gonna get Elias' nope. story. Oh, okay. Uh, Nathan and Carrie's story, but then we cut back to uh, Elias and John first, or uh, to, to Elias, because then we meet Acadia, and the, so it's a lot of interwoven storylines. So I appreciate the title cards, but it doesn't necessarily divide the segments of the film. Correct. Yes. Um, I'll pull in Milheiser again because he comments on this. The fractured timeline shows events from different angles and contexts, allowing scenes that seem throwaway in nature at first to be given far more resonance as the film progresses. I would also argue that it's a play on how time can pass differently from different people's perspectives. So mm. a moment that can feel drawn out when you're living it can be the flash of an eye for another character because it's not as significant. Well, as LL Cool J said in Deep Blue Sea, Einstein's theory of relativity, put your hands on a hot woman, an hour can feel like a second. Put your hands on a hot pan, a second can feel like an hour. I mean, he also said that his hat is like a shark's fin. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I like your quote better. <laughs> no, honestly, like <laughs> that is some inspired writing in that movie. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. You know what? It, it gets the point across in a very memorable way. Yeah, I, I have a degree <laughs> in um, science now. <laughs> Just science. General science. <laughs> Just science. <laughs> 
Okay, we're going to send you back to the school is what I'm saying. It's fine. Okay, so we do see Nathan, who is played by Nathan Tyson, and he puts on his red lifeguard hoodie. He goes into the school. I would argue one of the other reasons that these long takes are significant in this film, apart from the timing, apart from convincing you that you're watching real life events as opposed to a movie, I find it very helpful for establishing the geography of the school. So you're like, where is the cafeteria in relationship to the library and so on? That's one thing, too. In research and column on today, there were so many maps of mm-hmm. the killer's route in the school. So yes. I have to believe that Van Sant was referencing those two when, when doing this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd be interested to know if they somehow changed or edited the way that students move through the school to more closely mirror the real life events. But I wasn't able to really discover that. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I keep going back to the tastefulness of mm-hmm. of this too. It would have been easy to call this movie Columbine and make 100%. it a marketing blitz and make money off of it. And so again, mm-hmm. that's where it's like we're to, we're doing a title that has nothing to do with the subject matter at hand, which thereby makes it feel even less exploitative than I already think it is. And you reference the poster, and the poster mm-hmm. just has this image of John being kissed by Acadia inside of an elephant like that doesn't tell you anything about what the film is about they could have very easily made this far more sensational well and that's the thing right because you know if they just called this movie columbine i bet you this movie would have made a hundred million dollars yeah i mean it would have been picketed it would have been called in poor taste and all these other things but you're right it would have made way more money yeah so you know kudos to them for being good people (laughs) okay so as nathan passes by we are briefly introduced to Brittany jordan and nicole who are played by Brittany mountain jordan taylor and nicole george and we see them remark in slow motion about how cute he is and we will replay this scene in a different context in a little while yes we will So this is when we get the title card for Nathan and Carrie. That would be his girlfriend, played by Carrie Finkley. And they are stopping by the front office to sign out for lunch. Yep. So Mr. Luce, that's the principal. He lets John go with a reminder about detention. John leaves the keys for his brother. And we this, to me, is the first big moment where you realize, I've heard the dialogue before. Why am I hearing it a second time? Uh Uh-huh. And it clues you in that you're meant to be paying attention to see, okay, when is that overlapping? What time period are we in? Because Gus Van Sant, later on, particularly when we start to focus on the two killers, he doesn't tell you, oh, this is a flashback, or this is the day of, or when is it happening? So this is him saying, pay attention, dum-dums. Well, because the the Columbine shooters, they planned it for a year. Mm-hmm. Like, which I didn't know. I honestly thought it was more spur of the moment type thing. But so, yeah, watching these, what are flashbacks and not being told they are flashbacks, it was very jarring for a first time watch. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine so. So we see John walking down an empty hall and he goes into a large empty classroom and he begins to cry. And, you know, this could be many things. I think the most obvious reading is that he's upset about what he's having to deal with with his father. And then this is when Acadia comes in. We get her title card. She's played by Alicia Miles. And then she heads to the Gay Straight Alliance meeting where we get this camera doing the first of what will 
also be a repeated shot throughout the film, a 360 pan. So Trace, what do you think of this gay straight alliance scene? Well, I I love that this is really the only like proper scene that any of the school extracurriculars get in this movie. I mean, yes, Mm -hmm. we see shots of a football field, but we don't have like something happening or a conversation happening on the football field. So in 2003, our gay director is doing incorporating a gay straight alliance into his film. Mm hmm. I love the 360 aspects of the camera where we're just spinning in a circle, but also the conversation we are having here. Yes. Which is, can you tell a person is gay just by looking at them? And it's Mm -hmm. a surprisingly nuanced conversation, admittedly, with some of it where it's like, oh, what if the guy's wearing pink? Well, what, is pink exclusively gay? Well, no, if he has, like, rainbows all over his car, then sure, like, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But this was something that I wasn't expecting to see in a movie made at this time period. Yeah, yeah. I love that you said nuance because it actually echoes the other reference I'm going to bring in, which is uh, Nathaniel R. He had a recurring piece on his website, The Film Experience. So he covered HBO properties and all of their queer content because this is technically an HBO movie. It was originally developed for television, which is one of the other reasons why the aspect ratio looks uh, full frame instead of widescreen. Mm hmm. But uh, Nathaniel R. says, the answers are surprisingly nuanced. So the exact same words. (laughs) Hinging as they do on what we can and cannot know about a person just by looking at them, unwittingly alerting us to the very rhetoric that usually gets deployed when dealing with gun massacres like the one depicted in the film. Who'd have thought that a frustrated, if seemingly sensitive, piano-playing student would be planning a mass murder? Oof. Well, and see, I also think that this scene is necessary to have in here because, and we'll talk about it when we, like, later in the in the film, but there's a discussion to be had here about queer villains. Um, yes. And so, even though we have a queer director slash writer doing this, uh, I do think it'd be worse if it wasn't a queer man. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I'm sorry, I think it would be perceived as worse. I wouldn't personally care very much, but that's just me. <laughs> I wouldn't personally be offended. I wouldn't be offended because I'm good. No, uh, but, but I think it's important to be like, but look, we have these other non-problematic queer people in this movie um, mm-hmm. in a gay-straight alliance, which again, I I don't know how prevalent they were in the country at the time. I remember mm-hmm. reading about gay-straight alliances because when this movie came out, I would have been a freshman in high school. Right. And I remember there were always discussions about having one, but we could never get it off the ground. But again, I wasn't, you know, suburbs of Houston, Texas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I have heard from friends who have kids who are old enough to be in like junior high or high school now, and it does seem like they are more common, but it also seems like the heaviness of it sometimes relies on the allies as opposed to the actual queers. So it's a lot of kind of well-meaning straight folk who are saying, I want to be involved in this because I support the cause. One of the things I kind of like about this scene is the way that Van Sant shoots it is literally encouraging us as an audience to go, okay, well, how does this kid identify based on what they're saying, based on how they look, based on how they're dressed? So the film is asking you to make value judgments in this way that I think can be directly extrapolated to the rest of the film and what we think the causal factors of the shooting is. 100%. Yes. Ugh, I love that. But yeah, this, I, I really enjoyed this. I mean, this is probably the only scene that I quote unquote enjoyed <laughs> in <Right>. this movie. <laughs> yeah, you think, oh, okay, this is kind of fun. You know, I, I like the topic of discussion, the, the idea about the gay rams and whether or not people have a right to know before paying 10 thousand dollars for them you think this is a really interesting way to approach a discussion of whether we can stereotype queerness 
And again, in 2003, but I, I love what you said too about, yeah, it really depends on the allies to do it because, I mean, even like in high school for me, like there was one other out gay guy in my high school. So if we wanted mm-hmm. a gay straight alliance, they, we had us. Right. And then it had to be straights or closeted people that weren't afraid to come out and join the club, which mm-hmm. uh, that wasn't going to happen. Right. Yeah. It's rough. It wasn't that dissimilar for me. Like my best friend in high school was queer, but he found allies and almost kind of a, a protective shield by being in band, which was a kind of hypersexualized environment. So people were kind of like, well, you're doing whatever you want. We're all doing that. So it doesn't really matter. But, you know, it wasn't as easy for other people dare I include myself in that where I just got picked on because I didn't have that kind of support base. But you you said you were a theater kid, though. Did you not have that support base in your theater? Um, A little bit. I ended up spending a lot of time in the theater room at lunch in order to avoid some of this. But it was something I had to take upon myself. See, I'm sure I have said this before, but like, yeah, my theater troupe was like my safe haven because Mm -hmm. when I felt rejected by my parents, like I didn't get that from my theater troupe. And there were a lot of gay guys in the troupe that weren't out, ones that were older than me. And I remember I had a girl come and sit next to me. um, Carrie, I love you you if you ever listen to this. But, you know, she sat down and she was like, I just need to know that we're all very proud of you. And she mentioned a couple other boys' names who had graduated by this point. And one of them was actually kind of mean to me. And I'm I'm just going to repeat what she said, not what I don't know the truth. But, you know, she was like, he is jealous that you were able to come out when he wasn't. (laughs) But she was like, you were the first one in this troupe. Even though we knew that many people are gay, Mm -hmm. you were the first one to do this. And we are all so proud of you. And we stand by you. And I was like, as a... 16 year old coming out and feeling like abandoned by his parents like that was a really really good thing to hear from someone (laughs) Hmm. it kind of sounds like you did have a gay straight alliance it's just you didn't put a label on it oh 100 percent, absolutely yes and i I will forever be thankful for my theater troupe for never giving me any shit for my queerness yeah honestly if we have younger listeners who are either questioning or are looking for opportunities to be their authentic self if you're still in an environment where you feel unsafe or that it is toxic and you know you don't know who to turn to i would say seek out these kinds of clubs and organizations maybe it's not labeled uh, a gay straight alliance but maybe something like drama club or band or something where you'll at least have people who will have your back and who will value you for who you truly are so I don't think we need a gay straight alliances anymore because, you know, as we all know, we're all fine as a community. No problems. <laughs> no problems at all. Yeah, def- definitely no uh, anti-queer legislation going on at this very moment. No, we fixed it. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't you know? <laughs> we fixed it back in 2003 with this here movie. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, let's go back to Nathan and Carrie because I feel like they have a really interesting point here that most people don't seem to pick up on. Hmm. So they're making weekend plans to go. I can't remember what he calls it. It's some kind of off-roading. Oh, he says four buying. I had to look it up because four we were buying. Call, well, we call it we call it four wheeling. It's like you're getting a four wheeler and just driving yes. through like grass and mud. Yes, I feel like I had heard people say wheelies instead. Oh, maybe I'm just thinking of the shoes with the thing. Never mind, moving it's on. Four-wheeling, maybe even off-roading, maybe that's there a thing we go. too. Off-roading, that's what I had heard yeah. of. Although I guess it doesn't entail four wheels. Moving well, the, on the, again. The dev- <laughs> yes, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's interesting where she talks about how she has an appointment. And he's like, oh, is this have anything to do with what happened two weeks ago? 
And I feel like you could read this either uh, as an STI or she has made an abortion appointment. Yeah, I was I, I, truthfully, I actually missed this conversation. I don't remember this happening. Um, but based on what you just said, I would yes, I would read it as abortion. Mm-hmm. Which is fascinating because it is never mentioned again. Ooh, and ooh. it's just there. And well, then that makes me kind of happy that we don't know which one of them dies in the final shot of this film, because I feel mm-hmm. like if you knew it was her, then, of course, there'd be people be like, well, it's an anti-abortion movie. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> or she got what <laughs> she got. She what got what was, was coming to her. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. Baby murderer. <laughs> OK. <laughs> so. For the first of, I think, two or three times in this film, we will see Eli take a picture of John slapping his own ass in the hallway. And then John walks out to the parking lot as we get our introduction to the two boys who will become killers in this film. Alex, uh, that's the dark-haired one, played by Alex Frost, as well as Eric, who is played by Eric DeLune. And they are dressed in camo. They have large bags. And when they see John, they tell him not to come back because some heavy shit is going down. Yep. So if you didn't know this is a school shooting movie, this is pretty much makes it painfully obvious. This is your cue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is the first significant time jump that Van Sant introduces into the film. So we get the title card for Eric and Alex, and then we jump back to a physics class, time undisclosed, but he is being bullied. So he's being pelted by spitballs. We see him having to clean himself up in the bathroom after the fact. And then he is walking through the cafeteria, jotting down notes for his plan in a pocketbook. So I don't want to read them as like bullied queers and this is why they do it. But just mm-hmm. on, on a random bit of speculation, let's say we do. Let's say we okay. view them as queer kids. They are bullied. And because of this, this is why they, they make this attack happen. Sure. I understand you can make a problematic queer reading. Like, well, what is this representation we want? Blah, 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 blah. And mm-hmm. okay, this is going to make me sound terrible. Um, I thought about killing my bullies when I was in high school, middle school, elementary school. Right. I remember we talked about some queer rage when we covered the Rage Carry 2 way back in the day. Yep. Uh, I have seen some of our queer peers openly talk about wanting to murder Republicans on Twitter. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, so I get it where it's like, oh, we don't want other people to know that we think these thoughts about our bullies. But unfortunately, that's just what happens. Like, when you are bullied enough, like, I I get it. Like, I want to kill people. Not now, sorry. But back then, I did. (laughs) Don't put me on a list. Well, one of the other challenging pieces is that this is me speaking as somebody who's watched a lot of young adult material, right? Mm -hmm. Because I have my other podcast, so I'm regularly consuming this kind of stuff. The reality is that as a teenager, if you are being bullied, you are going to have strong reactions because you are deeply hormonal because you are going through puberty. So to pretend as though teenagers are operating in their right mind and are not being absolutely driven wild by chemicals like i'm not suggesting it gives folks a carte blanche or anything yeah but the suggestion that people might have angry outbursts or dark thoughts and that kind of stuff whether that's towards themselves or to others yes of course we fucking all do because we all had to go through this and then when you add something like bullying on top of that you're only exacerbating an already kind of potentially dangerous situation and it's a thing where it's like i get it you you can talk about better representation all you want however there's an authenticity to this if if, if yes. it was if, again we don't know what this is but if that is what it was i wouldn't bat an eye i'd be like yeah sure i get it <laughs> like mm-hmm. i'd want to shoot them all too 
Yeah. One of the interesting things that I like about, I, I find this film very fascinating from a technical standpoint. And mm -hmm. in this scene, Van Sant and his creative team play with the sound design. So when, <laughs> when we see Alex jotting down his notes, there's barely any sound because he is actually concentrating and focused and he's able to block everything out. But as he finishes writing, you hear the sounds, the kind of ambient background noises of all the students talking, and it just starts to fill up and it becomes almost overwhelmingly painful. Yeah. Oh, God. See, and like, while you were latching onto that, I was latching onto that girl going, what's what are you writing? It's my plan for what? Mm -hmm. Oh, you'll see. Like, we'll see. Ooh, I, ooh, I act. I remember. I, I just got it again, but I actively like got chills <laughs> when yeah. he said that. <laughs> it's really good. I actually quite like this actor, uh, Alex Frost, who plays I do too. this character because he's. You know, I don't think any of the kids are giving. They're not doing deep performances, right? Like they're not trying to embody a character. It feels like. They work collaboratively with Van Sant to come up with some characteristics and then they kind of just, yeah, improvise. So this kid is doing a kind of simmering teenage angst and anger piece, but he's also like so dead in the eyes. It's kind of fucking scary. It's interesting because you would think that the other one, um, yeah, uh, Eric would be the more like like unhinged when i guess really he is in the sense that he's more unpredictable but mm -hmm. there's a coldness to alex that is more haunting like he's like the the michael myers right like the blackest eyes the devil's right. eyes like that's what this kid is well and he's meant to mirror the real life counterpart that most people give credit for creating the plan yeah. for being the one who was actually in control whereas the other one was kind of like a stupid self-hating follower <sighs> And folks, we are making a deliberate decision to not name the real life shooters because we don't want to give them that power and we don't want to celebrate what they did. Man, I did something really morbid today, though. So again, doing this research and I saw a thing that was like, oh, yeah, the postmortem photos of the killers were released, I want to say, in 2003. Oof, uh... Oh, I went and looked them up. Uh, yeah, no. you, you, yeah, you, it's I mean, they're not like close up shots, but it, it's definitely a shot of their corpses in that library school with blood everywhere and their guns next to them. Like it's. um. Oh, Jesus. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. No. Because one of them put it, put the gun to his temple. The other one put the shotgun in the roof of his mouth. Yeah. And this is going to sound so bad. I wanted to see if I could see, like, what the guy's head looked like after the shotgun blast. You can't really see it. What is wrong with you? <laughs> I Again, I said morbid curiosity. Um, but, yeah, no, this this picture exists. It's on the internet. Um, again, it's of real life it violence. Does. Trigger warnings abound. But if you were curious, it's there. I mean, that's what's horrifying, right? Is that we live in a day and age now where if you wanted to read their bullshit fucking manifesto that yeah. I, I think it even came out that the police actively destroyed most of their documentation so yeah. that they wouldn't gain the notoriety and the infamy that they were so obviously desperate to get. There were some videotapes that I think now are collectively called the basement tapes mm -hmm. um, that they filmed themselves in, in their basements. I believe there were five-ish tapes. Uh, three were released publicly. The mm. other two were not. But they did let select family members of the victims watch those tapes. I think, Ooh. I don't know what the answer was, but like they wanted to. And I, maybe it was a hopefully sure. hoping they would get answers. But yeah, there are the contents of those tapes were never released publicly. And I'm, yes, I'm pretty sure they were destroyed. Good. 
You know what? I I think that that's what we should always do. Whenever we hear the words fucking manifesto or letter or website, it's like, nope, shut that shit down because that to me is actually the thing that will contribute to future shootings is because when people see this blow up, and that's actually another part of Ebert's review of this particular film is he was apparently approached in the wake of the actual Columbine shooting. Mm-hmm. And he was asked, you know, like, oh, do you think scary movies or bad movies, violent movies contributed to this? And he actually turned it back on this reporter and said, no, I think it's actually cable news. And the yeah. fact that these shootings are page one top story. And we celebrate these killers by naming them and we forget the victims and it's all the bad shit that we associate with true crime. And he was like, yeah, my interview did not make the edit. (laughs) It's like, oh, Ebert, I suddenly fucking love you. This is great. (laughs) So what you're saying is Gail Weathers and Scream 6 needed to talk to Roger Ebert circa 2003. Uh, I mean, she definitely needed to stop pushing her agenda about Cotton Weary. (laughs) (laughs) okay so let's hop back with michelle so we get her card come up as we hear but don't really see the pe teacher berating her for wearing the incorrect gym clothes and trace i know we talked about not stereotyping queer people but i read michelle as a closeted queer woman yeah i could see that i mean again like there's there's no explicit mention made but just given like given the way this girl carries herself her body Mm -hmm. language her posture um she wants to wear long pants instead of shorts which is a big no-no in gym class especially in texas um (laughs) but yeah uh i i I'll, i'll buy into that reading for you I guess the the thing is, and I, I don't mean this to sound mean or malicious, I see a lot of myself in Michelle, particularly around the subject of P.E. and watching her discomfort when she is being mm-hmm. mocked by these other girls in the change room and... Like, she's obviously not entirely comfortable with her body. I did take note that when she goes to her job in the library, she and the librarian are dressed almost identically. Mm-hmm. Like, she she is an adult in a teenager's body, and she is uncomfortable. And you can tell she just wants to get the fuck out of here with as little pomp and circumstance as possible. God, it's, I, I, when did you first see this movie? So I would have seen this when it came out on Jesus. DVD. So it would have been late 2003 or early 2004. Like I was definitely playing, a, okay, who's going to die? Who's going to survive during mm-hmm. this? Um, poor Michelle, man, though. She is the first one to go. Yep. And it's brutal. Yeah. And that is one of the things that people latch on to, whether you like it or you aggressively dislike it. You may think, oh, okay, well, because I'm following this character more, it means that they are going to survive or we're going to get to see them play the hero or something. And the movie doesn't play it that way with anyone. Just because you like Michelle or because you like Benny doesn't mean that they're not just going to die horribly. Yeah, I guess the I mean, the only the only thing that would go against that reading, which I don't even I don't even agree with, is that John is the first character we are introduced to. He is our Mm -hmm. quote unquote de facto protagonist, I guess, maybe Uh, kind of. And he mm. survives the movie. It's interesting that you say that because I remember the first time I watched this movie when we see the shot of the empty car with the car door open and his dad is Mm -hmm. missing. I remember vividly thinking, oh, his dad has gone missing. He's going to go back into the school looking for him and get shot. Oh, yeah. And see, I feel like that's like unnecessary drama. We don't need that in this movie. Mm -hmm. 
But it's also it's the random nature of why these things happen, but also who lives and who dies, right? It's characters in the wrong place at the wrong time, and there's no control. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And I think that adds to why it's so terrifying, and particularly the way that Van Sant shoots it with the long takes where people are just constantly walking around, and you're just like, danger could be afoot at any moment. And it's the unceremonious nature, right? Like, no one gets a big death scene. They just die, and they are out of the movie. Yeah, because to me, that is so much closer to real life. It makes it scarier. I mean, again, mm-hmm. like, you know, again, I, it's one of these things where this isn't technically considered a horror film, right. but I still consider this a horror film. A hundred percent. I think it's an exercise in tension building for like yes, 80 it something absolutely minutes. Is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, so we, we follow Eli as he develops some of his prints down in the dark room. We see Michelle getting mocked in the change room. We also see as Eric goes home to this very nondescript totally generic suburban house there's nothing that sets this house apart and i think that that's really fascinating yeah it's like he doesn't come from a bad home he's not he's not michael myers from rob zombies halloween Mm -hmm. yeah from what we know he has two parents his mom makes pancakes in the morning they seem affluent at least middle class if not upper middle class so you know in some ways i think we're we're actively trying to go against the idea of, well, oh, he had to be coming from a bad home or he had to have abusive parents or he had to have mental illness, like all these things that we say as a society to explain away behavior. And this film leans into it in some cases and doesn't in others. Yeah, which I I get why someone might find that unsatisfying. But Mm -hmm. again, that's where the authenticity comes in for me. Authenticity uh, supersedes uh what what am i trying to say normal filmmaking rules (laughs) uh yeah i mean i think this movie doesn't inherently play by traditional hollywood rules and that's Mm. really what gus van sand is interested in doing at this point in his career too like i'm sure there are people who are yelling at us that we haven't mentioned that this is the second film in a so-called death trilogy yeah yeah We've got Jerry before, and then we've got his um, Kurt Cobain movie, Kurt Cobain movie, which I've heard really good things about. I've actually always wanted to check out that one. Yeah, it's Michael Pitt doing it, mm-hmm. um, and then Jerry is about. Oh, it's not really. Oh, it's about the death of David Coughlin, who was killed after he and a friend became lost in Rattlesnake Canyon, New Mexico. Yes. Okay, yes, with noted sex pest Casey Affleck. Yeah, but Matt Damon, too. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Balance it out. (laughs) 50-50. Okay, so let's return to Brittany, Jordan, and Nicole. We finally get their title card, and we flash all the way back to the point where they were scoping out Nathan as he walked by in the hallway. So this is very jarring, I find, because we started to think, okay, we're settling in. It's going to be maybe Eli, maybe Michelle, but definitely now that we've been introduced to eric and alex we're probably going to see more of them and we will but we have to first spend a significant amount of time with honestly these three incredibly shallow just kind of surface level girls you know i saw some critiques about the bulimia Mm storyline i'm sorry i say storyline it's literally just a part of their characters um saying that it was gratuitous and unnecessary well you can make that argument about any part of this film yeah i mean 
again, did I know girls who were bulimic in high school? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you put a girl who's bulimic in high school in a movie about high school, I'm not going to really bat an eye at it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as I said, I've seen a lot of YA movies and there are other oh, yeah. movies that deal exclusively with this topic and they go into much more in depth and it's not a surface level. I think that this is just Van Sant saying, here's a snapshot of different types of people you might see in a high school. One is interested in taking photos. One has a drunk father. These girls are body image shopping, boyfriend obsessed. We don't really know much more about them except for the fact that, yeah, they are interested in what they think is maintaining their figures, and that is through an eating disorder. That isn't the point of the film. If anything, it's just to say, here's a trio of girls you might encounter in high school. Yeah, I mean, to play devil's advocate, I, I suppose you could argue that the bulimia reveal, quote unquote, mm-hmm. almost plays like a punchline to their segment because it is the last thing we see of them. It is kind of amusing how we we follow them through the cafeteria. They critique the food. They're having these kind of nonsense conversations about how much time you should spend with your friends versus your yeah. boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And then... They appear to eat one thing off the tray, and then they all stand up and go to the bathroom and barf for about 10 to 15 seconds. Which, honestly, I wish I could barf as easily as they do, because for me, if I'm trying to make myself throw up when I'm hungover, not bulimic, um, I have to like re- I have to like reach out my throat for like minutes. <laughs> well, you could argue that this is routine for them, so they yeah. are pretty established pros at it. I can definitely see why people would look at this and say, do we need to have this in here? Could we not have just had them talk about boys and shopping and driving? And, you know, there's even that punchline where one of the girls says, I just want to live to get my license. And you think, oh, girl, Mm -hmm. do Uh, you know what movie you're in? Narratively speaking, though, it, it does exist as a reason to get them into the bathroom. Correct. Yes. Because that is where they will supposedly die. Yeah, yeah. We also get this. One of my favorite sort of supporting nondescript characters is the girl who's accusing her friend of like, why do you think I'm a bad singer? I'm a great singer. Everyone loves yes. my singing. And then we see her run into the bathroom and it's technically because of her that uh, Alex ends up following them in and then maybe killing them all. I'm pretty sure he does. But yes. Yeah. Okay. So... Before we get to that, though, we do hop back to Alex's basement. This is where we get the scene with Fleur Elise on the piano. We've got another 360 degree rotation. And we do see Eric playing a first person shooter. In real life, it was apparently a lot of doom. This isn't doom from what i can gather because there weren't <laughs> monsters this is i was like Do- doom you're fighting hell monsters <laughs> yeah so i think this was a we don't want to pay for the rights we're only going to show it for a couple of seconds but yeah you know there were rumors that this is one of the things that they did and so we're putting it into the movie just to kind of say oh are we validating the thing you thought or are we confronting you by saying no it's actually not that this is just one part of these boys personalities well, because, you know, after another cutaway to the sky, then we cut back to them. And we also have them watching some old black and white Nazi footage propaganda. Mm-hmm. Yes. And of course, the real life shooting did take place on Hitler's birthday. But apparently it was meant to tie in to the Oklahoma City bombing and they just couldn't get the supplies they needed. So these are circumstantial things, right? 
Okay, that's the thing. Look, I am not trying to be like, y'all, gun gun laws, whatever. But this was always meant to be a bombing first and a shooting Mm -hmm. second. And that's how the movie does it. I'm sorry, when I say this, I mean Columbine, but that's how the movie does it, too. They were hoping the bombs were going to kill most of the people in their plan. Yes. So I find it funny that that's not talked about more. Well, I think it's because at the end of the day, that's not what happened. So when we look at the narrative, Mm -hmm. the people who died, they were all shot. So it becomes a school shooting. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, it was always going to be because they were still planning on shooting people as they left the cafeteria, the library, after whoever survived the bomb attacks. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this was meant to be a bombing first and a shooting as a backup plan. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I mean, either way, it was always going to be a very bad event. For sure. Um, and it's so funny because I actually thought that the Columbine kids like, oh, I just assume they got the guns from their parents because I'm like, well, so if a kid goes to school and shoots someone and it's their parents gun, then maybe the parents should go to jail. Like maybe that's a, something we can put into play here. <laughs> yes. Good luck passing that legislation. <laughs> no, because Amer- Americans don't fucking do that. But it's just like, a oh, God. But no, no, they just bought the guns. <laughs> yeah, they got it off the Internet. We see them scrolling through pages of guns and ammo. And then, yeah, as they're watching this Nazi propaganda a video a delivery truck literally shows up hands them a box and it's <laughs> here is a, a weapon of mass destruction go out and just start shooting in the garage that is something really good that bowling for columbine does so the shooters in columbine they got the guns from gun stores but they got all their bullets mm-hmm. from kmart right yeah and so what michael moore does is he takes two of the survivors from columbine one of them uh is paralyzed in the waist down is in a wheelchair and the other one is like has been through multiple surgeries to be able to walk Mm -hmm. but they make them take the bullets that were in them to return them to kmart oh boy yeah Mm -hmm. i mean michael moore has never shied away from doing that kind of sensational incendiary stunt pieces but Mm -hmm. I won't deny that they are incredibly effective. Very much. I mean, like these two kids holding the bullets that were in their bodies, in their hands, trying, walking into Kmart headquarters to be like, hey, we'd like to return these bullets. Oof. Ouch. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So we see Eli taking John's photo as Michelle runs by back at the school. So, you know, we're, we're kind of changing time and perspective again. And when we get to her in the library, we hear a click as she turns around and then we cut and the click is a match on action to Alex getting in the shower. This is in the past, but we won't know it until a little while later, but trace, we have come to the gay kiss yes so okay i pinged you to this before we started this conversation but i'm curious to your thoughts Mm -hmm. i i actually don't read these two characters as queer right i view them as two psychopaths who don't really have a lot of emotion and Mm -hmm. therefore they're like i mean there's not even a reaction whenever eric gets in the shower with alex you know there's Mm -hmm. no like oh what dude which could imply that they've done this before I'm more inclined to say, no, it doesn't matter to them. And their kiss is more, they're just like, oh, yeah, what, what would this feel? I've never kissed anyone. What would it feel like? We're going to die today. What would it feel like? And they just try it. I don't, but I don't know if I necessarily read queerness in these characters. It's, I, I see experimentalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we could suggest that they've done this before because they say, I've, you know, I've never kissed someone before. But mm-hmm. there is that surprising comfort level that suggests that the boys have either spent enough time around each other that this is okay, that they've maybe talked about it, or yes, that they might be queer. But I'm 
I'm inclined to read it the same way as you, where this is another piece of the puzzle that some people speculated. So the real life killers were bullied in part for being suspected a homosexual couple there isn't any evidence that they were it was just that they spent a bunch of time together because they were masterminding this plan and they felt like they were both outcasts and bullied but in the film itself this is positioned as something that just happens and it does feel like an experiment it does feel like a well if we're gonna go out we might as well have this moment of intimacy maybe it still makes them queer i mean Here's the thing. Before we started recording, I found what I consider garbage journalism. So <laughs> it's a piece okay. by Charles Taylor. It's it's his review for Elephant on Salon. And this reviewer, this critic clearly hated this movie and wants to go after it. But in relation to the scene, Taylor says it's pretty clear that the only reason the kiss exists in Elephant is that Van Sant couldn't resist watching two teenage boys make out. The voyeuristic way the scene is shot through a fog shower door emphasizes that. Okay, do you? I don't view this as voyeuristic. If anything, we're very far removed from this. This is the exact same way that the rest of the film is shot. So if you want to argue that steam from a shower fogs a door and makes it erotic and voyeuristic, then... I'm sorry, I'm going to call you out on a fucking reach. I also don't like the implication that a gay man wants to watch Mm -hmm. two gay teenagers fondle each other. Yes, that was the piece that I really picked up on. I don't know the orientation of Taylor, whether this is a queer reviewer who is incensed that a queer director is making teenage boys kiss for purportedly sensational titillation. I really just think that this is somebody who they're reading sexuality in a kind of here let let me say this i I think it's easier to have our reading today Mm -hmm. when sexual fluidities and experimentation is more common and accepted yes fair. it was not the case in 2003 where if two boys kiss Mm -hmm. oh my god those were a bunch of f slurs like that's that's how people view things and some people still view it that way today i mean Mm -hmm. my my issue comes from more of that you can make a reading that yes by making these two boys kiss in this scene it's othering it's othering them more mm-hmm. to make it easier for cisgender straight audience to be okay cool they're not like me because they're right. that and it makes it again easier to explain why these killers were the way they were mm-hmm. if it, if they're not like you yes so i can maybe see that as a, as a discussion point but again it's not like something that i'm hung up on it's more so yeah i could totally see that but i don't see it that way yeah, and I, I feel like I could see it if this was something that continued either through the rest of the film or it was a through line. Like, we've mentioned yeah. a couple of other very explicitly queer-related scenes, like the gay-straight alliance conversation, or characters who are maybe gently coded queer, like Michelle. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is an undercurrent of queerness that runs throughout this film. But also, to me, this just makes logical sense because Gus Van Sant is including a lot of the alleged rumors that contributed to the events. Yeah, and that was a rumor about these two shooters. Um, Question, and this may be too much of a hypothetical, but what if it was a straight director doing this movie? Would would it change how you feel about it? Well, I'm sorry. It would probably change how you feel about it, but Mm -hmm. would it impact it in a negative way, the way you view some of these scenes? Well, and that is a very fair point, because we often like to get up on the soapbox and say, well, it's okay, because it's a queer person who did it. And the reality is, is that shouldn't be as much of a contributing factor. To give 
Taylor, the benefit of a doubt, he does address that, that if it was a straight director, we would approach this in a different sense. So I, I still don't like the way he wrote it, but oh, he, yeah. he does acknowledge that. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not siding with this man at all. He says like no, a fucking no, I, tool. I, you're playing devil's advocate for the purposes <laughs> of having an informed conversation. Yeah. And I think the point that you raised is very valid. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I, I remember that... There were two kisses in conversation with this film. So there was the kiss on the poster of John and Acadia. Mm -hmm. And then there was the talk of this queer kiss. And they they really just dominated the discourse about, you know, straight kid, cutie blonde hair boy is okay, makes cover of poster. And then the secret shameful queer kiss that explains the shooting. So it it was something that people needed to have a conversation about it's so funny though because i feel like if you put let's let's say you put the kiss of the queer boys in the shower on the poster for this movie mm -hmm. um then that would also be i think giving value to the rumor about it and then right. that would also change the discourse and make make it about that when that's exactly the opposite of what van sant is trying to do mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think there's a very deliberate intention of when these characters are introduced in the narrative and you know we're at the point where the editing will start to speed up the shot yeah. length will start to decrease like we'll we'll get more edits more regularly but also these two will start to control or dominate the narrative right like we will see other characters less and these two more but it's by design it's very purposeful we're sort of moving into the crux of the narrative but it would have been very easy to have made the whole movie about them put them on the poster make this movie about them and that's not what Gus Van Sant wants to do exactly exactly Okay, so we we start to get more cross-cutting between them discussing the plan in Alex's basement, and then we're also seeing future events where we're mm -hmm. actually shooting in the school and so on. Yeah. And this is where Alex tells Eric... Have fun. Most important, have fun. Um, I actually... so Because this is also when we're getting on when they we see them load the car with their guns as they drive to school, mm -hmm. and... We sit in the back seat of this car as we endure their entire drive to school. Um, yeah. This I found very effective. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, it makes us complicit. I feel mm -hmm. like we're waiting to see, are they going to talk? Are they excited? Are they laughing? Are they somber and sad? And there's just nothing. We're just yeah. in this car. And it the wait feels interminable. Yeah, they don't even talk. They, they, they are just there like, yep. We're, honestly, the thing that I find so scary is that because they know they're going to die. Hypothetically, yeah. Well, and I think, uh, is it this movie or is it a quote from the Columbine Killers? where It's like, we're going to die today. There's a quote from someone where it's like, we're going to die today. So it's like they know to, to be that calm mm -hmm. going into a day where you know you're going to kill yourself. <sighs> yeah. I mean, it's I remember me. being a suicidal teenager and feeling like if i could ever get to that point that i would mm -hmm. feel a sense of relief because it would finally be coming to an end yeah and that's rough man like it's really really fucking rough and yeah it's the kind of thing where i think we as a society look at it and say well what can we do to have interventions that would prevent people from ever getting this way so that they don't harm themselves or harm others and i feel like we look at the movie and we say well we don't 
no. Like, there isn't going to be a moment where you just look at someone and say, well, that person is a danger of becoming a mass shooter. Ah, which ties back to our gay-straight alliance conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also because we just, we don't know what the fuck is going on with people because we're too busy living our own lives. Like, it's a bit of a fool's errand. It doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying or well, striving it, to do better. But it's a thing, again, with, with Columbine specifically, it's like, what could, what could we have done? Like, It's like, not to be the downer, but sometimes maybe nothing could have been done. And maybe that's wrong, but also I'm also a firm believer that if someone wants to kill somebody or a large group of people, they will find a way to do it. Yeah, yeah. N not to say, by the way, that gun control laws cannot help things. Obviously, they should. We should have stricter <laughs> gun control laws. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you said it, I was like, well, I'm going to reiterate the point that if we made guns harder to get, we would definitely have fewer <laughs> shooting. For, sh for sure. But that's even when I go back to, but they wanted it to be a bombing. So they would have made a bomb somehow and blown up somebody. Yeah, yeah. And and as you say this, um, so the author of that Columbine book that I referenced earlier in the episode, his name mm -hmm. is Dave Cullen, and he wrote a series of investigative pieces in the run up to the publishing of the book, like he covered the story extensively. And he definitely said that, yeah, at least the one of the two shooters, the guy who was the more of the, the mastermind, more psychotic. yeah, uh, he said he would have killed it was never a question of if, it was just a question of when and how. So yeah. if not Columbine, it would have been something else unless somebody discovered what he was up to and they either institutionalized him or he was put down. Which really, again, like I didn't actually get to read much about their parents. Um, although I will say to reference the movie Mass that we talked about earlier, everyone, mm -hmm. um, oh my God. I would Oof. highly recommend watching that, seeking it out. The premise is, you know, Two sets of parents meet in the church basement to talk about things. One set of parents are the parents of a school shooter. Mm -hmm. And the other set of parents are the parents of one of the victims. Uh, yeah. And the whole movie plays out in this basement as they talk to each other. And it is fucking amazing. It's, it's so good. Amazing. And the fact that it was passed over for all of the acting awards when those four actors should have received oh. everything. Ann Dowd, Jason Isaacs, Martha Plimpton, Reed Burney, and directed by Fran Kranz, of all people. Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's real good. And we'll touch on um, the fallout probably at the end of the episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we see them driving to school in silence, and they pass John. So we get a recreation of the scene that mm -hmm. we saw earlier, only from their perspective. And as soon as they go into the school, we follow John, and he just immediately begins telling everybody, don't go in there. And he's actively trying to stop people. Hey, this is the one kind of laugh in the movie that I got as unintentionally funny as it is. Um, we then cut to our two killers as they are waiting for these bombs to go off. Mm-hmm. And the bomb does not go off. And one of them no. just goes, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> yep. So we switch to plan B, which is, okay, we're going to go to high population areas and we're going to start shooting. Yep. So they go to the library and that's where yep. we circle back to Michelle as she hears the gun cock behind her. Yeah. And as you correctly said earlier, we also can infer that Eli is one of the victims of this particular shooting although we only see him take a picture when they first come into the library and then we hear gunshots but we don't get to see him hit we don't see the body or anything like that Ooh, but we do see poor michelle get hit and that's oh the boy. first bit of blood we see in this movie again, this movie isn't gory but like when, some, when we see some of these like gunshots like mm -hmm. the blood is flowing 
Well, and it's so fucking unceremonious. Like, I'm used yeah. to action movie squibs or CGI blood. A score. You know, it's ridiculous. Like, this is so matter of fact. It's presented exactly the same way as everything else in this film. And that makes it harder to watch because... I like Michelle. I don't want this to happen to Michelle. I want yeah. her to get a moment. I want to be able to grieve for her or anything. And it's just, no, the movie says, okay, that happened and now we're moving on. Well, I think the lack of score here is really key too, right? We yeah. don't have a swelling of sad no. music to be like, oh no, your favorite character died. No, 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 no. We don't, mm-hmm. like, and, and we don't even get the piano music comes back later in the final moments of the yes. film, but nothing during this massacre. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we move to the bathroom, and this is where we get the scene with Brittany, Jordan, and Nicole. They hear the shooting, and they joke that it sounds like a bomb, and then they even have a little kind of sing, no more homework, no teachers, and then that's when Alex comes in, Mm. and we just cut before... We cut away. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. So then we move to the Gay Straight Alliance, and we see a boy that we've never really met before. Nate, he gets up to go and check in the hall, and he is shot, and they drag his body back into the classroom. And this is when Acadia freezes as other students make their way out the window. Yeah. And, okay, so th- this was jarring for me. So yes, yeah, so Acadia freezes, she's stuck in this room, mm-hmm. and then we get a new character title card. <sighs> this one... I I will say this. I appreciate how the movie just kind of does its own thing. It doesn't it doesn't try to adhere to conventions as we said. This is by design. You know, we're introducing a new person because you know what? Yeah, there would be other people that we haven't followed who just randomly walk into the story as it were. This takes me out of the movie every fucking time. It's just uh, it, like, do you want to talk about how it's the film's like main person of color? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is <laughs> Benny, played by Benny Dixon, and we've not met him before. We've not seen him before. He is the only black character, black actor in this film. He shows up for a couple of scenes. He helps Acadia out the window. He comes across Eric threatening Mister Luce, and he is shot. Which I was very much like, okay, so you're going to help this white girl out the window. Go Mm -hmm. you. Um, Why does he not go out that window? So I've seen a couple of people say this is the closest the film comes to subverting your expectations. Benny is a big guy. He looks like he could be an athlete. He. Oh, hero. he, He seems very calm. He seems in control of his emotions. He's not scared. He's not upset. And I've seen a lot of people look at this as, oh, Benny's going to go in there and he's going to fuck shit up. He's going to stop Eric from shooting more people. He's going to at least have a bit of a heroic moment. And no, Van Sant undercuts that. He just kills this character. Okay, so, okay, wait, wait. I I will put a positive spin on this because, Mm -hmm. again, a part part of that Bully for Columbine documentary is about, yeah, how so many people at the time were, you know, blaming, uh, oh, it was a black man, it was a black man, a black man did this, a black man did that. Of course, of course we did. Yeah, a woman drowned her two children in a bathtub, called the police and said a black man came in and did it. Mm-hmm. So, because it's easy to buy that, right? Why would a white woman who's a mother kill her children when a black man could have easily walked into her apartment? God, um, when you say it that way. <laughs> exactly. But, but, but uh, sarcasm, obviously. Obviously, um, yeah, because it's fucking <laughs> stupid. And why would anyone ever believe that? But, oh, right, it's because we're deeply racist. Oh, people, and people did believe that. Like, she wasn't caught for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But no, so I guess, okay, if I want to put a positive spin on this, it's like, okay, oh, here's the big, tough black guy. He's going to go beat one of these kids up. He's going to maybe not be our hero, but he'll do something about this. Exactly. 
and it's also showing again so it's tying into our, our, the country's beliefs that black men are a dangerous figure but hey in a situation like this that could be really beneficial to us mm-hmm. oh finally the muscle has shown up nope yeah and so he walks up and he finds Eric and, oop, no, literally just turns around, shoots him, Benny's out of the movie. Uh, sorry, <laughs> y'all, your ideological idea of a black man is false. Yeah, and I think it does play back into the gay-straight alliance conversation that we had earlier where it's like, well, what do you see and why do you think that? And this is more about us as spectators than about what the narrative is actually doing. Yeah, I mean, I would I have liked to have met this character sooner? Yes. Yes, because I think you could have played with, with whatever I was just saying a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, I mean, it, it's not movie ruining for me, but yeah, it, it does take me out of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So we should note that it's not as though Benny just is introduced, saves Acadia, and then is immediately killed. There are a couple of scenes sort of in between. I think one of the ones that I find gently emotionally manipulative but i don't mind it is that we do see john finding his father and his father is seemingly very sober now but he will not take his hand off john like he has to keep track of him at all times as we're watching smoke just billowing out of the school yeah I mean, you know, I'll buy him, like, sobering up a bit, mm-hmm. um, if only because I imagine hearing gunshots inside a school building will really uh, snap some booze out of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just, like, shoots out of his pores. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ooh, okay, now I uh, I gotta snap into dad mode. <laughs> if only it were that easy, you, like, like blow on your thumb and, like, pshoo, all the alcohol shoots out. <laughs> oh my god, can you imagine? Ugh. Yeah, cops would be out of business. Okay, so yeah, this is when Benny is shot and we see that Eric is a bit of a sadist because he teases that he's going to let Mr. Luce go and then as soon as he starts to run away, he shoots him several times in the back and just calls him a bitch. Ooh, God. See, it's both of these killers are so unlikable, but my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Was I a little happy when Alex kills him mid-sentence? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're nearly at that moment. So we we cut back to Alex, who is jogging and just shooting people. He's quoting Macbeth. So Macbeth. foul and fair yes. a day I've not seen. Well, it, it was Shakespeare's fault. That's why this happened. <laughs> exactly. But I I think this and the piano playing earlier are direct attacks on this idea that oh well they played video games and they listened to Marilyn Manson, so right. they had to be these lowbrow kind of stupid boys. And it's like. Mm, no, they they could know Macbeth and they could play the piano and still be mass shooters. They were cultured, intelligent, and worldly. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really affects me in this part of the film is as Alex is running, you can hear birds chirping on the soundtrack. Oh, okay. Why does that affect you? So it, it's very similar to the conversation we had about the shots of the sky and how it's kind of a like, yep, this is just something that will happen and the rest of the world will continue rotating. This idea that we have all of this horrific violence and people dying, but outside, just a couple of feet away, we have birds chirping like it's a regular day. Oh, okay. Yeah. So just a, me- a memory of a day that is not filled with gunfire. <laughs> yeah. I mean... It highlights the fact that this can be a very insulated, small circumstance, right? Like, 
mm-hmm. it's happening to these 15 main characters in the movie that we're following but also the outside world is is still kind of living its life obliviously yeah it's movie yeah oh God. i i i get like really freaked out when i think about things like that i mean it, mm-hmm. this is gonna sound silly but i'm always like i wake up and i'm like what is julia roberts doing right now like this really yeah. famous person who is just like living their normal quote-unquote life that's not not mine clearly but like mm-hmm. you know these other people exist their lives are going on i could literally get stabbed by a assailant right now and no one would know yeah, yeah, like we're recording this podcast and somewhere something terrible is happening to somebody else or like yeah. there's a war happening, but it's out of sight, out of mind because it's either A, not directly affecting us or B, it's not happening around us. So we're unaware of it. Ooh, or the sadder part is it's happening and no one's ever going to find out about it. Yeah, folks, we did warn you this is going to be a bit of a heavy episode. <laughs> I know. (laughs) I'm trying to make the jokes when I can. There we go. There we go. Okay. um, So we've not heard or seen Nathan or Carrie in quite some time, but they are still in the school. They see Alex in the distance. And I really like this shot because they're at one end of the hall and he's at the other and he's blurry almost the whole time that he's walking towards them. But Mm -hmm. because they made a sound, he follows them yeah that's the it's so funny they choose to hide somewhere in the school and i'm like y'all run out of the building (laughs) but it's because you don't know like yeah we know that there are two shooters and which areas are safe they have no idea what is happening they just know that there's violence and again so this is the equivalent of the run upstairs or out the door when a serial Mm -hmm. killer is chasing you type thing where it's like yeah you don't know you don't know know So you use your best judgment to be like, what's going to make me survive the easiest? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And if you see a safe space, like, I actually completely agree with what they do, which is they hide in the freezer in the kitchen of the cafeteria, because I think no one would look for me here. This seems like a very uh, inauspicious place to hide. So hopefully a killer will just go after other people or they won't think to come in here and I'll be safe. Well, that's the thing, right? Because you're in a fucking school. Now, granted, like my high school was like 3,000 people big. But it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you're hiding here. And if you were Nathan and Carrie and you were hiding in this freezer and you mm-hmm. that door fucking opened in that freezer, yeah. aren't you just hoping, like, please be someone that's looking for survivors? <laughs> yeah, let it be the police. Let it be firemen. Let it be other students. Let it be anybody but the person with the gun. And imagine, but because also th- there's a selfish part of, you or me where you're like please go get other people don't come for me like go to where other people are don't come to my hiding spot and it's Mm -hmm. so selfish it's so horrible but like that is a very real human thought that's going to be happening when you're in a situation like this oh sure yeah yeah unfortunately um we skipped ahead to the ending but we do i'm sorry we do get eric's death scene here where yeah they uh reconvene in the the cafeteria Mm -hmm. and eric just starts bragging about killing the the principal and other people and mid-sentence alex just shoots him yep looks at him no emotion and just walks away this is oddly shot to me because i'll confess it it always takes me an extra beat to figure out oh it's alex who shot him because the way it's staged you think it could be the police had broken in and he was taken out i think that's intentional yeah because i 100 percent thought the same thing because yeah you're kind of like oh wait who shot him mm-hmm. and then alex walks in the frame yeah. um so I, I like this though I, I like that it makes you think oh maybe something hopeful is happening <laughs> 
Well, and obviously it hadn't come out yet, but it maybe feels like a Quentin Tarantino jam where we are doing a revisionist take on what actually happened in real life. And maybe these killers will be taken out or will change the fate of some of these people. But that is not what happens. Not what happens at all. And again, the camera is remaining indifferent to this entire thing the entire time. Yep. Yep, except for one final piece. So we do have Alex discovering Nathan and Carrie in the freezer. He starts to play a game of eeny, meeny, miny, mo with which one he's going to shoot. And this is where the camera backs away from the action. And then we cut to black before we hear a shot or a cry or any kind of glimpse as to which of the two he might have shot. Yeah, I was like, we don't hear anything, right? No, nope. nope. yeah. we just go back to the sky. We had just done that House of Thousand Corpses audio commentary, and you know, there's a whole thing where you know there's a part where someone's holding a gun to someone's head, and the camera keeps backing up, backing up. It's quiet, it's quiet, mm-hmm. and you're waiting for the gunshot, which does come. Yeah. It does not come in this movie, and so you are left just deflated by yep. the time we cut to credits in this movie. Yeah. So this is why people say, oh, you know, even though technically the last 15 to 20 minutes of the movie is a quote unquote climax because we're getting the action that we've been building up to the whole movie. I think because of this deflating ending and the uncertainty and the lack of resolution, the definite lack of catharsis, people leave this movie and just say, oh, okay, well, what the fuck? Well, my question to those people are. What did you expect? <laughs> well, did, did you want this movie to make you feel better about the Columbine Massacre? Did, 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 it want, did you want it to give you the answers for mm-hmm. the Columbine Massacre? Because the, the reality of the situation is no one felt good after that thing. Everyone felt deflated. No one knew why. And this movie instills those exact same emotions and feelings into its viewers by design. Well, and that's why I think it's so important. That it's treading the line somewhere between fiction and documentary, because if this was a more Hollywood film, if this was the Nicolas Cage 9-11 World movie, Trade yeah. we would have to have some kind of pat, ceremonious, cathartic ending. Maybe it wouldn't be entirely happy, but you would have to end it on a note because you would never get enough money. Hollywood would never agree to make it. You would never get it into enough theaters if it ended like this but because this feels like it's not quite fiction and it's not quite documentary i think it's able to say oh well you wanted something more we were never going to give you that that's not what you've been watching sorry and i think that's the best way to do it and this is when i'll bring in the fallout and you know, i'm going to spoil kind of the way this movie ends no the fallout's very you much can't a movie spoil that... that movie it's just well, right. <laughs> the, the, so the, the fallout, it's Jenna Ortega. It's fantastic. But mm-hmm. the, the, the prologue of the film is the school shooting. So that's yeah. what happens. And the rest of the movie deals with the fallout mm-hmm. and how these characters deal with the trauma they've endured. But what I love about the ending of this movie is that, you know, like, OK, Jenna Ortega goes through her shit. She has Molly at school. She's like fucking around with oh, a, she's a, a fucking mess. She's a mess. Um, and by the end of the movie, she's better. She's still but, a fucking mess. But the thing is, she's like on her phone texting her mom something saying, I'm going to go somewhere. And she hears a bang. And mm-hmm. it's not from a gun. It's from like a car or something. Well, we don't know. Oh, Are you right. sure it's not a gun? 
Right. But well, because we hold in her face. Cause well, because to me, this ending was more saying like she's never going to be okay. Exactly. She's always going to be traumatized mm-hmm. and fearing of this exact situation. Yeah. Um, but maybe but nevertheless, even if it is a guy or it's not whatever, it's about her and how she is not going to be the same after this. Mm-hmm. She is not a-okay when the movie ends because there's no easy answers to this. And that's what I love about it. No, and and the idea that this is just one day and then people get to go back to their ordinary, quote, normal lives doesn't exist. These people will carry this for the rest of their lives. And yeah, it's not even, oh, well, what could we have done to stop it? It's what are we doing to help the people who are affected by it? Oh, I'm sorry. I just looked it up. She gets a notification on her phone about another shooting somewhere else in the country and has a panic attack that's what it is but right. my point still stands and yes you were 100 percent. can you imagine like being <laughs> just going back to your normal life after this no 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 especially when we are talking about you know people at a vulnerable age right like junior high high school Fuck, there's been school shootings i'm using school in air quotes but like we've had them at daycares and stuff like how is that not going to fuck people up for the rest of their lives? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an unfortunate, like, uh, what do I want to say? It's not a side effect. It's just an unfortunate reality that yeah. we have to live in right now. Hmm. So let me give you the very alarming stats, Trace. Oh, oh yes. Yes. I'm sorry. You caught teasing me for so long with this. Okay. So Columbine happens in 1999. It was one of 99 school shootings in the 90s. This is U.S. statistics. So in the U.S., in the decade of the 1990s, 99 shootings. In the 2000s, we drop down. We only have 80. In the 2010s, we jump up to 252. Jesus Christ. And we are currently four years into the 2020s, and we already have 131. Fuck me. Ugh. What, what, do you have Canadian stats? No. Because <laughs> <laughs> y'all don't have any stats. <laughs> You're like, what stats? <laughs> I mean, I can tell you. It, it's not as though we haven't had them. Like, there was actually a school shooting maybe like a half an hour away from me the summer after Columbine. Uh, but it was like one person. I think somebody brought a gun and they shot it and there was nobody harmed. Um, okay, so I, I have to do my one other because it's not just Canada here. It's it's the US versus literally every other country in the world. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, my last bit of bowling for Columbine. So, you know, they talk about how after Columbine happened, um, Charlton Heston, who was a major spokesperson for the NRA, the yes. National Rifle Association, they come to Littleton, Colorado to do a big old NRA mixer mm-hmm. four days after the Columbine thing, with Charlton Heston being the big spokesperson saying, don't worry, they can't take away our guns. It's so fucking rude. It's it's just unconscionable. And there was a murder of a six-year-old girl a couple years later. Um, a six-year-old boy brought a his parents' gun to school and shot another six-year-old girl, and she died. And what does Charlton Heston and the NRA do but do the exact same fucking thing, mm-hmm. where days later they go and they do a fucking rally in this town where this little girl was shot in her school. And Moore does go to Heston's house, interview this man, posing as a member of the NRA. Mm. <laughs> And by God, when he's asking him, well, why are the U.S. rates, gun gun rates so high in other countries? He's like, well, you know, uh, th- th- we have a much more violent history as a country. Um, <laughs> we have a more bloodied history than other countries. And he's like, oh more God. than Germany? He just goes, yeah. And he's like, 
No. More than Germany. <laughs> like, <laughs> sir, think about what you're saying right now. It is cringe incarnate, but honestly, oh my, I'm mad I didn't watch the documentary sooner. All to say, this is a lot. This is, this, I love this movie mm-hmm. so much. I do want to show it to people, um, but it's also like not a movie I want to jump back and watch again today no (laughs) no this is not your new favorite you're not going to put this into heavy rotation but uh i mean this is definitely one of the ones where as you said even though i don't think it's a traditional horror film by any stretch i find it horrifying to watch i don't want to say it's entertaining but it is enthralling i find it so highly watchable i think it's really gorgeously made these young non-professional actors are doing great work without being histrionic like there's something very compelling about their naturalistic performances and i just i don't know i love the kinds of conversations and the reactions that people have to this movie except for people who are just being fucking assholes about it. Yeah, I mean, look, we're not saying you can't like this movie, dislike this movie, think it's exploitative, but mm-hmm. I mean, again, ha- be willing to have that conversation about it because I feel like a lot of the uh, the extremely negative reactions I was reading from, from the time, from 2003, mm-hmm. were so closed off to even having a discussion about it. Yeah, and I think a large part of it was that it was an open wound and we were yeah. still grieving. We didn't know how to process. It felt like it was too soon. But as you said, Charlton fucking Heston was out rallying around in days after this happened. So like, Days! Oh, <laughs> he claimed he didn't know it was right after that girl got killed, too. And I was like, bullshit. sir, sir, bullshit, <laughs> sir, calculated move. No one's buying it. Yeah. But anyway. OK, well, okay. that is Elephant. One more thing. So before we close out, I'm going to do something very somber, but I think it's really important. As I said, we made a deliberate decision not to name the killers of Columbine, but I am going to confirm there were 24 people who were injured. There were 13 people who died, and I'm going to now read their names. So the people who died at Columbine in 1999 are Cassie Bernal, Steve Curnow, Corey DePuder, Kelly Fleming, Matthew Ketchter, Daniel Mauser, Daniel Rorbo, Rachel Scott, Isaiah Scholes, John Tomlin, Laura Townsend, Kyle Velasquez, and teacher Dave Sanders. So Cassie Bernal, I'm sorry, I know we're about to end this, but like that's so that's the girl. I remember in middle school, they were pimping out this book to us called She Said Yes. And <laughs> this is the girl. I, th- I thought this was true my entire life until I was doing research today. But basically, the, the rumor was that the killers asked her, do you believe in God? And she right. said yes. And then they killed her. Her mother wrote a book about this mm-hmm. <laughs> years later. Religious propaganda. Yes. Um, and, and this girl was held up as a Christian martyr for many, many years. Right. And in fact, that this this quote-unquote factual account was debunked uh she this never happened uh mm-hmm. she did die but there were other kids in the library that heard this exchange and they were like no that's not what happened and so mm-hmm. i just uh, i had my mind blown today because I, I i will occasionally think about that book she said i didn't even read it but i remember in middle school thinking man that sucks like also thinking about what would i do if someone asked me do you believe in god I'm like, well, what, what do they want me to say mm-hmm. <laughs> like what would make me survive <laughs> is there even a right answer no, yeah, I, mean, I, I believe they would have killed her either way. But again, I just I was surprised to find out that that was a complete myth. Yeah, and and guess what? There was no 
well, I'm sure there was some, but there was nowhere near the same vitriol and outrage when that was exposed as an urban legend. Of course not. But if it was a gay person. <laughs> well, I'm just saying. Oh, <laughs> uh, God. Okay, right. well, that has been Elephant, everyone. Um, before we announce recovering next week, just a quick housekeeping to get out of the way. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers or our thoughts on exciting upcoming horror releases. If you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are uh, in May, so sign up to get over 240 hours of extra content. This month, we are going all in on the Evil Dead franchise with an episode on Evil Dead Rise, our thoughts on the franchise as a whole, and an audio commentary on the original 1981 film. Plus, we'll have episodes on Amazon Prime's Queer as Fuck Dead Ringer series and the new sequel, The Wrath of Becky. Ooh. I know. Uh, Joe. Yes. What are we talking about next week? Well, we are leaving realism well behind so that we can travel into a kind of bubble universe within our own. Uh, we're headed back to 2018 Trace, which I think is the best contemporary year for horror. We're going to talk about Alex Garland's Annihilation. Ooh, and this is also a queer one, too. Um, I am I've only seen this once, but I Ooh, really okay. liked it. And I have read the entire book trilogy. Okay, yeah. I have read, I think, all of the books. I don't remember them particularly well, even though we mm -hmm. did just reread the first one for Horror Queers Book Club. But um, yeah, this was probably my favorite film of 2018, which is saying... A lot. A lot. <laughs> All right, everyone. We'll stay tuned. Check out Annihilation before next week. But until then, we can cross out Elephant. Indeed. And cross out Horror Queers. Horror Queers.